This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY, the podcast for writers on how to live the writing life. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. guest is writer Felice Cohen. She is what we call a polymath, meaning she knows about many things and has written about them, lectures about them, and thereby defying all the laws of publishing that usually advise a writer to stay in one lane. And we'll talk about that and so much more. Greetings, Felice. Hi, how are you? I'm good. And I'm really better for having read your work, starting with a uh, piece in Medium. I read this interview with you and was really gratified to read that your origin writing story is so much about story. So I thought I'd just whip through that for people to kind of put you in context. You were recruited to play two different Division One sports in college. You quit the teams but stayed on by covering the games for the school newspaper. You wrote about sports, which led to writing an opinion piece. During your senior year, you discovered a family secret. Your maternal grandmother, the woman you're named after, hadn't died from cancer, as you'd been told, but had committed suicide. You asked your grandfather why, and he told you a story you'd never heard, that she'd been in Auschwitz during Holocaust. So you wrote a column in the newspaper about her life, and your grandfather's response was one of tremendous relief, having unburdened himself from her secret. And that's when he asked you to write his story. And it's your book, What Papa Told Me. And it's a two-time honorable mention book award winner, has sold tens of thousands of copies around the world, translated into Polish and continues to be taught in schools as part of their Holocaust curriculum. So look at all that story about story. So you're the perfect person to ask, what's the value of writing down our stories? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think for me, it's, you know, you write what you know, but, you know, we all have these individual lives and experiences, and sometimes they're universal, And I think you can share your story and others can get something from them. You know, Mm -hmm. with my grandfather's story on the Holocaust, his story represents millions of people who didn't survive. And and I still talk about his story even up to now. It's about hope. No matter what you go through, there's still that hope to have. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. I think that it's wonderful how often and how far afield you go and who you speak to about that. I really admire that. People can go to your website and see the lectures you've given and the place you've given them. And before you wrote that book, you were a professional organizer, a pro at managing space. And when your grandfather got cancer in his late 80s, it really kind of put the pressure on to get that book done. So you write that you put 77 boxes of stuff into storage. (laughs) I'm thinking about 77, yeah. And you moved into a 90-square-foot Manhattan studio. And after writing an article about how to organize that tiny space, there was a video made and that video went out and it's had 25 million views to date. And the requests for more interviews poured in, but it also really boosted the book about your granddad. And it really started to sell around the world. So 
In response, you wrote 90 Lessons for Living Large, Living Large in 90 Square Feet. And I just love your response. It's like, well, then I'll just write about that. So the adage is to write what you know, as you said, which you did. But taking that advice to heart, switching from the Holocaust to a space organizing book, which is also a a life guide. It's not literally just how to store your stuff, but that's fascinating. So talk to me about just changing lanes like that. Sure. Well, you know, it's funny when I speak about my grandfather's book or if I speak at tiny house festivals around the country, both of the books, both of the stories are intertwined because like you said, I moved into that tiny apartment so that I could finish writing my grandfather's book. And because of that tiny apartment and the video going viral, his book sold around the world. And, you know, I'd been an organizer for years and I'd always toyed with writing a book on organizing and I felt like, you know, the shelves were already loaded with, and with books like this. I didn't want to add to the clutter. So I wanted to write kind of a want-to guide to how to live the life you want to live, which is part of my grandfather's message always about enjoying your life. And, you know, we have so much stuff or we don't have time to use the stuff we have. Why is that? And it's because we're overwhelmed often by stuff. And so I wanted to write a book to help you enjoy your life. Simple lessons, whether you live in 90 square feet or more, it's just about kind of finding your priority and what do you want to do with that. I love that they're intertwined and I get it totally. On a cellular level, I understand absolutely. And I thank you for that because I think a lot of people want to do that, but they think, oh, well, I can't. I'm, you know, I, I'm supposed to stick to this one lane. And that's kind of what everybody tells us in publishing, right? They say, stick to your lane, just write what sold last time. And this gets to your whole polymath thing, which is, you know, that you you really have written from a lot of different spaces. So didn't you get the memo to stick to your lane? <laughs> Sister? (laughs) You know, it's funny. When I was eight, my father had a business card made for me and it had like, it had, it listed puzzles and math and basketball. And he always said, you can do all the things you love to do. And I just, that's the lane I stuck on, the multiple lane. Oh, I'm so glad I asked. He had a business card made for you. Yeah, there you go. And that's just it. If we don't get that advice, we don't take that advice. And and when we first hear it, we think, why? Because you really go out after a whole lot of different topics, which we're going to get to, and including in this just really wonderful memoir, You've written four memoirs, but your most recent one I want to talk about is called Half In, in which you won the 2022 Outstanding LGBT Book Award of the Year for Fiction and Nonfiction from the Independent Author Network. And it examines, among several great themes, forbidden love. And at the time, at the age you were, the position of the woman with whom you fell in love, her age, all this made it forbidden. But, you know, forbidden love, I was thinking about this, it's a really tricky thing to write about because... Well, if we're lucky, times change. And while, you know, we could debate that back and forth right now, considering the politics of America, but times have changed. You grew up, anyway. Same-sex love is less of an issue, thank God. But let's talk about recreating the strong emotional content of a time before. Did you find that difficult to write about something that, that was forbidden then that maybe now isn't so forbidden? I mean, how do you do that exactly? Yeah, you know, in the early 90s when the affair began, it was don't ask, don't tell. And yeah. today it's love is love is love. But I think I started writing this book about 16 years ago when 
right after she died. And it was written not to be a book. It was written for therapy for myself. And it was just kind of writing it down and because I mourned her as I loved her in secret. So I just kept writing and writing. And so I've been writing about this all these years. Mm. And it wasn't like I just started writing. So it started off... And the book has morphed so many times, you know, probably 600 different edits and just over and over and how I wanted to tell the story. And, and as I got more comfortable with myself and my own sexuality and the secret, the society also became more comfortable with it. And I think we both kind of grew at the same time. So now that, you know, I felt better about it, it was easier to, in a way, come out with this forbidden love story. Yeah, that's lovely. And and you mentioned the length of time that you were writing about it and that she died, which did that allow for you to write it more so, do you think? You know, she was always supportive of my writing. I don't know if I would have written it had she not died. Mm. I had no one really to talk to, to explain how I was feeling. And writing for me was always go to my journals. And that's really how I even started this book, Half In. I took all my journal entries and typed them up and I took all of our letters. I had gotten the letters I sent her back before she died and Mm. I just typed it all up. And that was kind of the jumping point of this book. That's interesting. You got all the letters that you had written back before she died, which would allow you to recreate a frame of mind a little bit better. You know, the language we use at one age is very different than the language we use at another, especially when we're talking about longing and belonging and love. So the original material, that must have been... Did you get them all at once? Did you? Yeah, they Ooh. were all in a bag for me. And it was when you're starting to read them all through, you just... It was cathartic as well. You relive it, you know? And I worked with my grandfather and his story. He had to relive all those experiences in the Holocaust. And that's tough. It's hard, but it was, again, cathartic. It was a way of of just seeing how the love developed. And every time I sat down to do a new edit, I kind of got excited because I thought, here I am going in how we met and then how we fell in love, and then what happened through that. And it was kind of a nice walk down memory lane. Oh, that's lovely. Because I I ask every time I have a memoir writer on who's written about trauma, I ask them their opinion, and I'll ask you, but you have the trauma of your grandfather and the Holocaust, but you also have the beauty of being able to reread this process of falling in love. So I'll ask you, what are we asking a memoir writer to do when we ask her to go back and look at something? Are we asking her to reanimate it? Are we asking her to relive it? Or are we asking her to sort of coolly stand here and report on it from here? What do you think is the process that we're requiring of a memoirist when they they look back at something? I think it really depends on the memoirist. I mean, how do you want to tell the story? Mm-hmm. When I teach memoir writing, it's, you know, you find that kind of life event that had the most significance or impact on you. And how do you want to tell that story? Do you want to do it chronologically and build up to it? Do you want to kind of go back and forth? And I felt for me, I wanted to write it as though it were a novel, as though it were fiction. And and that's how I wanted it to come across. Um, A lot of people say to me, it felt like I was reading a novel because that's the kind of book I like to read. So that's how I wanted 
it to read, but you know, starting it, it didn't sound like that. It really took a lot of edits and edits and kind of morphing into the story I wanted to tell. And with my editors, the biggest thing was was asking me, Felice, but what do you feel? Because <laughs> uh. as a journalist, it's easy to tell, well, this happened, this happened, but I had to go back in and put in how I really felt. And that was the hardest part. That was kind of the last layer I had to put in. And it's funny because now that the book is out there, I feel free of the secret. That really is what I needed from this memoir, whether anybody else read it or not. That's lovely. I read that you had talked to a therapist and you wrote in a lovely essay in 2022 in the Gay and Lesbian Review that coincides with the publication of the book. You write of the love affair, um, you chronicle in that book, and you write that you felt stuck in the past. And your therapist said, in order to move on, you need to tell your story. And you did. So that's kind of amazing. Who else in your life gives you good writing advice along with a therapist? Uh, my dad, for sure. He's brilliant. He's an attorney. He's written a million briefs and papers. And so he was he was my editor on the What Puppet Told Me book. Um, and he was one of the first editors on Half In before I you know, went for other editors. But I mean, we always joke that, you know, if your father hasn't edited your sex scenes, then you haven't lived. Um, <laughs> because they're I'm having a total, <laughs> complete panic attack right now. <laughs> um, it's It's been really funny. And, you know, and I think, but I think that's why I put in a little sarcasm and a little humor to distance myself from it. But I, it was also oh. helpful in the way that I said, well, here I am, I'm now, you know, in my 50s, I was 23 then. So it kind of gave me distance when he was editing about me at 23. It was a little less embarrassing. And, you know, we're close, so we were able to talk about it and laugh about it. But it's pretty funny. <laughs> so do you read aloud to him? Do you hand him pages? Do you hand him pages as you're going? I mean, people always ask me for advice if they have somebody who's willing to read and who is a good reader, which I always say, you know, get someone who's invested in your success, but who also has the skills. So just give me a sense of how you do that. Do you hand over the pages as you're writing or do you give them a chunk or how does it work? I usually will print it out and give it to him. And, you know, it's interesting that What Papa Told Me book came out in, I think it was 2010. Uh, my dad has Parkinson's. And so editing back then with a red pen like he used to do when I was in college and it would come back looking like it was bled all over. Um, and I loved it because, you know, it was tough at first, but it's only making the story better. And so as the years kind of went on, it was harder for him to write. So I would, I'd still give him pages and make the font larger. And sometimes he would still edit it. And if he couldn't, then he would look at it and read it to me. And I would you know, be next to him typing it on my laptop, the edits. And then I would reread it and he would hear it and then he might give me other other edits. The idea of making the font larger actually brought tears right into my eyes. Mm. These are the kinds of details that make story. That is such a loving gesture, what you just said. The idea that you accommodated your editor as he developed through his Parkinson's, that's just really touching and gorgeous. And I hope you'll write about that sometime about 
what we do. It's just a love. That's a love story right there. Mm. That's beautiful. Oh, my goodness. So before we just both have to lie down and start sobbing, <laughs> let, let me move on to a project you're undertaking right now. You're amid producing a series of books called The Fancy Tales, to, to date, including three books. A modern-day Cinderella with a gay twist. A modern-day Peter Pan. Come on, he's we've always known Peter was gay. <laughs> and a modern-day Jack and the Beanstalk. And Jack, too, I would argue, you know. But yes, with a gay twist. So it's... <laughs> Narrated by a different kind of tooth fairy. The fancy tales are soon to be joined by Sleeping Booty, Beauty and the Butch, Little Red Rider in the Hood, Goldie, comma, Locks, comma, and the Three Schmears, Kitty and Kinky Boots. Yeah, I just, I love this. So it just, <laughs> it just begs the question, what, what do they offer that make them so perfect for a messaging reboot right now? Well, you know, we know them so well. You know, yeah. we all know the fairy tales. And I think just giving them a little twist in a modern day <laughs> society. You know, I, I'm a volunteer in Central Park. I love the park. And there are so many statues in the park. And and for me, the Central Park is magical. So that's mm -hmm. where the stories take place. And that's where the magic happens. And there are like three bear statues. So there's a statue of a of witch and, and a goose. So it's like Mother Goose and the Bad Witch. And, and there are all these stories that lend themselves. And I think just taking these stories with a kind of an LGBT twist that it's just straightforward. It was just fun to do. Yeah, I hope so, because they're fun to read and they're even more fun to look forward to. And I love that it's in the park. I grew up in New York City and magical things do happen in the park. It's, they're perfectly placed. So as the listeners can understand, this idea of calling you a polymath is really right. If you look it up in the dictionary, it's defined as a person with a wide range of interests and expertise in various fields, an individual whose knowledge spans a substantial number of subjects known to draw on complex bodies of knowledge to solve specific problems. And that's how I see you. It's that solve specific problems thing, I think, that I was really drawn to as I started to think about the idea of, of polymath. And, you know, you're, you're asking us to till some serious stuff here as you're asking us to consider the Holocaust, as you're asking us to consider forbidden love, and as you're asking us to reboot these very well-known tales. So what kind of authority do you think it takes to take on this kind of tilling of the important stuff of life, but to do it with, and you're, you're a very entertaining writer. As you said, you use a wry and sarcastic tone sometimes and humor, but I mean, there's something you decided to do that I'm just trying to get at the confidence or the authority or, you know, along with that business card your father gave her you when you were a kid, what else were you packing that says, yeah, I can do this. You know, I think I'm the oldest of three girls. I think my parents just instilled in me that we could do anything. And, you know, I started off in college as a math major and I got through Calc 3 and I was thought, what Ooh. am I doing? Yeah, it was, it was a nightmare. So halfway I'm through impressed. my <laughs> I, I Yeah, and after Calc 3 and I said, I don't, I don't, I'm so lost. I spent a weekend reading the course catalog and I read every major and nothing appealed to me. And then I found a major that you could create your own based wow. on all these different interests. And I thought, I have so many interests. You know, I, I always love doing lots of things. And, and one thing I love are jigsaw puzzles, which are putting lots of different things together. And I think for me, being organized is the basis 
that it allows me to do all these things because I'm organized. And for organizing, I look at it not so much as having a neat space, but having more time to do the things you love. So, yeah. That question really does need to be addressed. This whole idea of you were a professional organizer, and there's so much about writing that beginning writers don't understand that is purely organizational. And people come to me, I work with writers all day long, and they think that it's almost all mystical, that, you know, something drops from the muse into your head and it comes out your fingers and it comes out from page one to page 365. And God, I hope it does for somebody, but it does not for me. A, nothing writes itself. That's just true. And B, you know, suddenly you've got these 500 shards, and I think of them as shards. They're sharp-edged little insistent things that you've written that want to be stitched together and you need some organizational skills. So do you think being a professional organizer has sort of gotten under and and helped you out with your writing? I think it has in terms of, you know, people always say, how do you get motivated to do it? And I've always had to motivate myself. You know, I've had jobs um, where I had to get it to a place at a certain time. But for the most part, when you're writing, I would come home from jobs and I would write at night. I would spend weekends writing. I could be on a Friday night at a library or a Starbucks writing. And it's it's organizing your time and planning ahead. And sometimes there are times I just feel like I don't feel like writing and I'll set my phone for 45 minutes, shut off my notifications and get in the seat. So that kind of motivates me. I Sometimes I'll say I'll, I'll take 15 minutes and do laundry, wash the dishes, make the bed, get everything ready, and then sit down to write. And sometimes, you know, I need to have an organized workspace. And I think that helps because we see distractions. It distracts our minds. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to be able to write and clear your mind, you need to remove distractions. Well, it's true. I give the advice to people to be hospitable. And what that means, even when I was living in my one bedroom, tiny little brownstone apartment in, in, on the Upper West Side, I had only, uh, the desk was also you know in the living room, which was also the dining room and everything else except for the bedroom and bathroom. And I just kept one part of that desk clean of anything. No bills went on there, no taxes went on there. And I learned early on that if you could get access to it and you didn't have to remove stuff from it, and get lost in, you know, the taxes or the bills, that you could be hospitable to your talent. I could be hospitable to my talent more specifically. And I give that advice that, you know, as you get older and if you're if you're fortunate enough to have an office or whatever, same thing. No taxes on that desk, no bills on that desk. You know, if you can get a clear shot to it, it's it's the grace of of work. So it sounds like you're able to work in short spurts. You're busy, I know, you do a lot of things. Do you try to write five days a week? Do you try to write, you know, do you have any other practice advice that you can pass on? Yeah, I I like to work in 45-minute spurts. If at the end of that 45 minutes, if I'm in the middle of something, I reset the timer and keep going. If not, I'll stretch, I'll get a drink, I'll do it a few minutes, check email, and I'll go again. But I like to start early in the morning. That's when, you know, the emails aren't really coming in yet, I'm not distracted, and it's quiet and I can just go. And I try to do, you know, four to six, 45-minute spurts a day. And when I, I can get them done, I feel productive. Right. 
That's lovely. I like the 45. That's interesting. I mean, I've heard everything I've heard about the tomato timer and the mm. 20 minutes and the this and the that. I don't care if you wear a flipping bunny suit to the work as long as you get it done. You know, that's what I say to people all the time. Just just find a way to get to the, if you even have to bribe yourself, big hunks of dark chocolate work for me. Just get there and stay there for some allotted amount of time. So you've got a 45-minute gig, and I think that's great. That's wonderful. So we talked before about this whole idea of being a polymath and, you know, not getting the memo that you're supposed to just do one thing. And I started to think in your specific example, you were discovered, it's such a silly word, but your work really was percolated up on YouTube with that video. And then you've done some self-publishing, you've done some lecturing, you do social media and so much more. And I wonder if that is giving people more confidence, specifically did it give you more confidence, the the idea that we have all these different platforms these days, do you think that gives people more confidence to do different varied topics or just spread out more? To me, it feels like there's more elbow room if you try a little YouTube and you try a little TikTok and you try a little of this, but I don't know, that may be just me. What about you? Did it boost your confidence to see the success of the YouTube, and then you said, well, I can write about anything if I can be a YouTube star. I don't know. What was the effect? <laughs> I don't know if it boosts my confidence, but it, you know, I didn't set out thinking I want to write about this, I want to write about that. It just kind of naturally fell in my lap. I started the the personal memoir pretty much before my grandfather's book. It was just kind of something I worked on a little with dealing with the affair and then I put it aside. But, you know, I think sometimes as great as social media can be, it can also be a distraction and a time suck. Um, But what a lot of them say is if you find, you know, if you want to be an author or writer, you have to promote yourself on social media. And I think it's finding the right social media platform that works for you. You don't have to do Facebook and TikTok and Instagram. You know, the, YouTube was a surprise with that video. That just kind of kind of was bonkers. It was early on with YouTube. And, you know, the video now has found a new life on TikTok. So I'm, I'm getting lots <laughs> of messages from people saying, are you still in that tiny apartment? And I'm always happy to talk about the apartment or the tiny living or organizing or the Holocaust or this personal memoir. And it did give me confidence in a way, I think, with my writing when people start reading it. You know, I wrote my grandfather's book not thinking anybody would buy any copies. I wrote it as just a Mm. gift for him. And I went in with that kind of mindset of, I love to write. I want to do and be creative. People buy the book, great. If they don't buy the book, okay. I mean, I'd love them to, but I just want to keep writing more books and being able to do what I love to do. That's lovely. And of course, it's so so pure of heart. Is it the same intent that you bring to the table every day now? Pretty much. Um, You know, I'm working on a new book and it's based on every letter I've ever been sent in my life. For some reason, I've saved them. Um, and you know I'm not a, a saver. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was going to say, this flies in the face right. of the 90 square right. feet. <laughs> but paper doesn't take up much room. I mean, I have like over a thousand letters from family and friends and exes. And I'm thinking of doing, to, I might do a trilogy and start with the letters from exes as a graphic novel. Uh, because I love graphic oh. novels. And it Me makes too. it fun and I can be quirky and, and put in sarcastic comments. 
I love that. Alison Bechdel is one of yes. my absolute all-time idols. And the idea of the graphic memoir has really taken hold. And I'm seeing so many varieties of it, not just the sort of cartoon cells, but people using medical uh, records and menus and all kinds of ephemera from their lives. And I think that's exciting. I cannot wait to see what you do with this. So thank you. And good luck. I'm really, I'm a super fan and it's a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming along today and talking with me. Well, thank you, Mary, and it was a pleasure. You're most welcome. The writer is Felice Cohen. See more on her at FeliceCohen.com. Get her books wherever books are sold. You can follow her on Instagram and on Facebook. For more information on speaking engagements or anything else, go to her website. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to Cordy. Cordy is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Jacqueline Mignot. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com, the home of the memoir project, where writers get their needs met through online classes on how to write memoir. And thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow Cordy wherever you get your podcasts and listen to it wherever you go. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It helps others to find their way to their writing lives. 